Baking a birthday cake or a sheet of cookies can be a technical process, one that requires immense preparation, precision, and patience. Take, for example, the New York Times recipe for raspberry mochi butter cake with matcha glaze. One and three fourths cups of sugar, 12 ounces or 340 grams of fresh raspberries, three and a fourth cups or 18 milliliters of full fat coconut milk, and the list goes on. With this extensive list, baking can be very easy to mess up, from adding incorrect proportions to misplacing the ingredients themselves. But that is what makes baking an adventure. I too experienced the sense of adventure and frustration a month ago. When baking trail mix cookies with a friend, we didn't have any sugar, so we improvised by adding more fruit and nut butter. Let's just say our final result was an intricate nut collage. For Claire Savitz, baking this methodical process has been a constant source of joy. Former Bon Appetit recipe tester, senior editor, and now Bon Appetit Test Kitchen YouTube host, Savitz is well known for her show Gourmet Makes. Where she recreates popular snacks such as homemade Cheez-Its and Starbursts from household ingredients, as well as her appearances on other Bon Appetit series such as From the Test Kitchen and Making Perfect. Claire came on the podcast to chat about her journey into food academia and media, dissect her creative brainstorming during Gourmet Makes episodes, and preview her upcoming baking book, which comes out in 2020. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. You're listening to Gouda Talks, a podcast about food and culture, hosted by Jess Ang on WHRB ninety five point three FM. One of the first things I love to ask people who come and talk to me is, "Where did your love or interest in food begin?" Yeah, I think it was always present and really started in childhood, but it wasn't something that I became. Really aware of or identified until I was out of college. I come from a family that just sort of naturally places a really high premium on food and cooking. And again, like I didn't realize that until I was older and sort of witnessed like other families and their dynamics. And it was always strange to me that other families like didn't cook together and plan all their meals together and plan the next meal at the current meal, which is what my family always did、um, and still does. So I have both my, my parents are great cooks and. Growing up, my mom made dinner every night, and cooking was just sort of a, a very natural family activity that we all really enjoyed doing and and focused on a lot. And I also am someone that just has sort of I think a naturally very like robust appetite, love to eat, and sort of always understood that food is pleasure. And it sort of took me a little while as an adult to understand that and to have a better under not only better understanding but sort of acceptance around that. But that's sort of like what my wiring is. And when did you know that, or when did you learn that you could study food? Because that's so cool. I know that you went and you studied cuisine, but you also studied culinary history too. I remember the moment that I realized that NYU had a food studies program, and I was out of college. I had been out of college for maybe over a year, and I remember thinking, "Wow, I can't believe that's a thing. That's what I want to do." But I decided to go to culinary school first. So I did. I ended up doing a one-year master's program at McGill University. But it was toward the end of that program that I realized, well, I really miss cooking, and I want to be doing that. I miss that sort of physical act, and and I I kind of decided I didn't want to be an academic because it felt a little bit cloistered, and, and that what I really wanted to be doing was maybe writing for a more popular audience. And then sort of food media became this natural next step. 
were you writing recipes at that time or were you cooking a lot? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was cooking a lot, basically graduation from, under, from college and, and beyond. It became an activity that I used as sort of stress relieving. I didn't find a job immediately after college, so I was like living back with my parents over the summer. Um, and that's really when it started. And at some point, that job moved to New York, and then I realized that the sort of passion for cooking didn't subside and only got stronger. Basically, all I could think about every day was like, what am I going to make when I get home and going to the grocery store and looking at recipes online, which made me like not a great employee at what I was doing. But then at some point I decided, well, if I really want to seriously pursue this, I should probably do it sooner rather than later because I figured it would only get more difficult to go to culinary school as I got older. But I, 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 when looking back now, I, I really see that a lot of the cooking that I was doing in my 20s before I pursued it professionally was like recipe development. I would, I've always been a good researcher. I would sort of exhaustively research a recipe. First, I would get an idea for a recipe that I wanted to make. And then I would go into like a research phase and look at all the different versions there were and sort of think about like, what are the parts that I like from each recipe and can I kind of cobble it together? And what modifications do I want to make based on the ingredients or the technique? And then I would go home and make it. And it was an anxious process because I would maybe be trying to make something I never made before. And I didn't have, I didn't have any formal training and I didn't have a lot of experience, but it was also really fun. So I think it's important now that I can kind of connect to that anxiety when I'm writing recipes for home cooks who don't have the confidence of a professional cook or even a very experienced home cook. But it's funny, I really do look back at that behaviors that I had then around cooking and see that I was recipe developing, which is now, based, you know, now it's my bread and butter. Now it's the core of what I do, especially like in graduate school, I sort of had to bake to like maintain my sanity. I was also living in Montreal where it was so cold and I didn't have that many friends because I was new to the city. And what I would do when I wasn't studying or writing was I, is I would bake and then I would bring the stuff to my classes for my classmates to eat. So it's, it's checked many boxes for me. It's stress relieving, it's sort of therapeutic. It's, I've always liked doing stuff with my hands. I, I really like doing sort of various forms of fine art when I was a kid. So it's all of those different things. And it's been a, a constant in my life for a long time. You said you were doing a lot of this work, writing and testing food for Bon Appetit. What was it like to be asked to actually host a YouTube series? From a 180 degree point of view, it looks very deliberate, but it certainly did not happen, um, at least from my perspective, in a way that felt very like calculated. And I certainly never like put YouTube personality on my list of career goals at all. And I, I was very happy being an editor. So I, I began working at Bon Appetit in the summer of 2013. I was working, the, so I've always worked in the test kitchen, but my first job there was a permanent freelance job that was just recipe testing. So that means that the other food editors would develop a recipe and it would be tasted and and heavily workshopped and discussed. And once it was developed to a point where everyone liked it and it was ready to go, they would hand me the recipe and I would cook it just to make sure there were no errors or, or I would make sure all the cook times were correct. So I was kind of the last line of defense in the kitchen. My role evolved from there and I got a job as assistant editor and then associate editor and then senior associate editor, food editor, and then senior food editor. So I loved the work of being an editor because it felt like 
sort of the, the, a perfect role for me because I got to write, as opposed to working in a restaurant, I felt like, okay, instead of someone telling me what to cook, I get to pitch my ideas to other people and then be someone who's saying, like, you, you should make this thing and here's why. So that was always my role, and I really loved it, and, and I loved working in print, and I started then over time doing stuff digitally as the website really grew. The YouTube, the video stuff really came out of left field for me. The, the company, Sakana Nast, which owns Bon Appetit, started to develop a pretty robust uh, video strategy. The test kitchen became a really natural place to shoot video. It, it has great light, great windows. It's an exciting kind of nerve center of everything that happens at the magazine. So that was sort of a, a, a natural fit for video. And I had done a couple of videos, a couple of recipe videos here and there that were more kind of how-to without really being like hosted. And then one day they were like, Claire, you know, we want to shoot you like making a Twinkie in the test kitchen. It was this idea for a pilot. The initial idea for the pilot was just the Twinkie. So it wasn't conceived necessarily as this long running series from the very beginning. And I think that the story that I heard originally was that they, they were maybe going to ask a pastry chef, like a real pastry chef working in a restaurant to do it. And they sort of said, oh, well, you know, let's just, it's just easier and simpler if we have someone in the test kitchen do it. So that, they, that was me. Um, so I sort of over time gained sort of a reputation as the baker in the test kitchen. So it just felt like that was a good fit. And then this, the series really grew from there. And for a very long time, I was, doing my regular full-time job as senior food editor and making the videos kind of on the side, which was pretty stressful. And I think is why in the, in the first, I don't know how many episodes of the series, I look extremely stressed out. And I'd have to tell the, the camera guy and the director, like, okay, we have to cut for an hour because I have to go to a meeting, you know? I think one day it just popped up on my YouTube feed and I got so excited and I watched, you know, I binged all of them and they've been <laughs> really great. And one question that I always had is, how did you decide on the recipes to make for each of your episode series? Did you try them as a kid or what was the inspiration behind it? Oh, I don't have a whole lot to do. I'm allowed to sort of give my input, but I don't have a whole lot of decision-making power when it comes to what the subject is. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is I think that the video producers and sort of like the brains behind the operation like somewhat like the element of surprise. Not, not that it's like a total surprise to me when I get there. Like, what am I going to be making? But I don't do any research beforehand. I don't look at the ingredient list. I don't look up any recipes. There's like lots of recipes online for people that have already attempted sort of homemade versions of all of these things. So I don't look at any of those. So the, the process is arranged in a way that there's sort of like everything happens on camera. so They can capture the whole process. There's some sort of calculation in, in what list of, snack foods or candies they draw from and that has to do with sort of metrics about perfor video performance and stuff like that and so I've given my two cents about like oh I would like to do this thing because I think it'd be fun um or I've, I've actually vetoed a couple I'm not doing that I vetoed pop rocks because I just didn't think that the the process would look interesting basically like one version to the next wouldn't look any different and I was also just like I don't want to do that so it's, it's, I guess it's collaborative of like what I end up making, but it certainly is not just like me coming being like, I want to make this thing, you know, it's, it's a decision that's arrived at via many different people. Can you tell me more about sort of your thought process when you get the snack and you're looking at it and what really is going through your head? There's some that have, it feels like there's real analog for in home cooking or baking. 
for example, like a Snickers bar. It's caramel and peanuts and nougat and chocolate. And nougat is sort of a confectionery thing. Like that is not only something that exists in a factory setting produced by it was a big factory company. So there's if there's some kind of touchstone of, you know, what this thing is and that the recipe exists in a home kitchen context, then that's my starting point. And then I can research recipes and then kind of make them and compare them to the, the subject. And then there's other things where it feels like there is no analog in the home kitchen, like Skittles. Then I kind of have to maybe be a little bit more creative about how to create this thing where it feels like there is no version that can be made at home. So it kind of depends. But sometimes there's recipes that I've done in the past that I feel like are good starting points where I've already made them. Like caramel is a good example of I have lots of different recipes that I that I did for Bon Appetit that have like a caramel component. And I can and some of them are like fluids with the caramel sauce. Some of them are caramel candies, so they're firm and cut and you can cut them and they're chewy. And so depending on what I'm going for, I can kind of pull from this fairly large library of recipes that I've done previously for the magazine or for online. Where I get dumped changes in every episode. And knowing that you can make certain snacks from scratch now, does that change how you approach shopping at a grocery store and going down the snack aisles? I'm not a snacker, which I think is something that comes up a lot in every episode because in most cases, the thing that I'm making Sometimes I've never had it. Sometimes it's something I've, I haven't had it since I was a kid and like went trick-or-treating for Halloween. So I tend to be one of those shoppers who goes around the perimeter of the grocery store, the produce section, the refrigerated dairy section, and that's kind of it. I don't want to make it sound like my eating is so virtuous because it's not, but I'm just not someone who naturally, I think it's because I just never had that stuff in our house growing up. Like I can't really relate to the people who are like, oh, I love Cheez-Its, you know, I buy a box of Cheez-Its and... I mean, I never buy a box of cheeses. It's, I think that I just sort of am missing that, like, salty, crunchy gene that, like, makes me want to eat that stuff. That said, I do have an incredible sweet tooth and eat dessert every day. I noticed that also in your series, including Gourmet Makes, and then your new series, The Baking Show, uh, mm-hmm. you definitely show the different iterations of the process. You had mentioned this before, too and the multiple rounds of testing. What made you decide on structuring your episodes around this culture of error and relatability rather than presenting it as like a perfectly finished product um, that we see so much on like, let's say Food Network or some other uh, food video? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the idea of incorporating into BA's baking school, this idea of showing what happens when you do all the things it says not to do in a recipe. I think that came from Gourmet Makes and just the idea that it's so much more interesting and there's so much more learning that happens when you make a mistake and when something comes out perfectly because there's so many variables in baking. You sort of never know when something turns out, like what could you have done differently and have it still turn out and what, when you changed it, would have ruined it. So the idea was sort of like, I'll make the mistakes and show you what they look like so then you kind of don't have to. And I do like that it is relatable because I've made all of these mistakes before when I'm making, not only when I've been baking at home, but when I'm in the test kitchen developing a recipe because the goal is always to try to develop a recipe that is as streamlined as possible. So a lot of times I ask myself like, well, what would happen if I didn't cream together the butter and sugar and I just mix everything together because if it if it turns out then I feel like I've really made this great discovery and I can pass that on to the reader and say you don't have to do this step it's extraneous 
But then sometimes I do that and it doesn't turn out. And now I know, okay, that is really essential for these reasons. So it was just about trying to um, provide a show with real service to home bakers because it's just not that interesting. There's so many shows out there where it's someone, an expert in front of the camera who makes the recipe straight through and it comes out perfectly. And I'm not sure how much the, the viewer at home really learns from that. In a definitely a digital culture, um, and I know Bon Appetit is also a print magazine too. Do you think a similar concept could be done in print? Um, say like showing the culture of error, because I feel like it hasn't been done before. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. My initial feeling is, I don't know, I'm skeptical because Bon Appetit is a beautiful magazine. It has beautiful photography, incredible food styling. All the food kind of jumps off the page and looks really delicious. So there is something about it that's always been aspirational. But at the end of the day, I think people buy the magazine or subscribe to the magazine because they want recipes to make for, you know, during the week and on the weekends and to entertain their friends. So it's so driven by that recipe content. And so I guess I'm, I'm skeptical that the, the format could kind of go the other direction. Going back to your role as in the test, test kitchen, one thing I always had a question about is baking isn't subjective, but definitely tasting could be subjective. And so what yeah. are some particular things you look for when you taste and create recipes? Do you think that great recipes are subjective or can they at least be somewhat objectively good? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's it's such, it's, an, it's a question I turn over all the time because in the test kitchen, it's not that we all agree all the time, but I think that we all ag- agree on sort of a, a general criteria for what makes any recipe delicious. And that those criteria are like, it's well balanced. There's, you know, the right amount of salt. There's acid to really brighten the flavors. There's a, a wide variety of textures. So there's crunchy and soft and it sort of is a recipe, every recipe, no matter what it is, kind of has to deliver on all these different levels. At the same time, we really disagree about certain ingredients and and certain choices about, okay, if you're going to put a nut in this recipe, which nut is it going to be? And like, I might really want it to be pecans and Chris Morocco might really want it to be almonds and, and we need to bake that. So there's always going to be subjectivity to the recipes and and we see that a lot with readers, like there might be a recipe that we all think is great and that maybe it gets wonderful reviews online because there's a, little, there's a comment section and then a reviewer will be like, I didn't like this at all. You know, it just, it was too sweet or it didn't have enough this or it was kind of bland. So it's, you cannot please everybody. I think the best that you can do is make sure that it's a well-written recipe that is clear and is going to work for the reader, is well-tested, is concise. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing because food is always going to be subjective. There's things that I always look for in a recipe. If it's a baking recipe, I always want it to be not too sweet. And that there, I always find that a lot of baking recipes really lack salt. Salt is a very important flavor in baking as well. So, like, enough salt to really bring out the flavors. T- texture is always so important. So, similar to a savory recipe, it has to sort of hit all these different levels um, and everything has to sort of work together to deliver this experience. And there's also kind of like an X factor with recipes. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes you make a recipe, and actually it's pretty rare, but it happens occasionally. You make a recipe and you're like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever made. I'm a genius. You know, usually it's the opposite. Usually it's like, I, I do, I, you know, do I even know how to bake? This is terrible. 
but every once in a while you get a recipe that makes you feel like you are some kind of genius. And that's kind of always what I'm chasing with recipes. Can I come up with something that is much greater than the sum of its parts? And it's going to make someone feel like a better baker than maybe they really are. That's like the holy grail for recipes. I assume it has happened once or twice at least. Can you talk about that experience? It's the simpler recipes where that happens because it's easy to write a complicated recipe. It's actually very difficult to write a simple recipe. And what's more challenging is something that's very, very simple that turns out incredibly delicious. So I think of a couple things like there was like a rhubarb cake with sour cream and it was a super, super simple cake with some lemon zest, a couple eggs, and, and it, there, it was not a cake that you had to make in a stand mixer. You basically just whisk together the wet ingredients and the dry ingredients and combine them and you put long rhubarb stalks on top and you baked it just all in one layer and it just came out incredibly delicious and it's that kind of recipe where it's like there's so little effort you know, it doesn't call for any really obscure, hard to find ingredients, no special, you don't have to go to a specialty store. And you just feel it's just so satisfying to make and to eat. So yeah, that that's one that stands out as sort of um, like checking out all those boxes. You mentioned that you have a, a cookbook project coming out or a book project. Um, can you talk? Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Coming from a magazine, I'm accustomed to a a production schedule that's measured in months, not years. The cookbook is very different. It it shocked me when I learned how long it takes to write a cookbook on average. So it's quite a process. So this book will not come out until fall 2020, which felt a very long way away when I first signed the contract. And now that I have to do it, it feels like it's like right around the corner. But yeah, so it's a baking book. And I wasn't always convinced that I would do a, a baking book as a first book, but when I thought about how much work it is to write a cookbook and and all of the testing involved, I had to really consider like, well, what do I want to be doing and what I want to be making? And the answer for me is always baking. So it's sort of a, a general baking book, not not exhaustive, not encyclopedic by any measure, but it's really a book. It is for people who want to learn how to bake or become a better baker. And, and they can do that through the lens of kind of making the kinds of recipes that I like to make. So they're very produce forward. The book is kind of making the argument that baking is just as artistic and creative and improvisational as cooking, because I always hear this thing over and over that people tell me, which is, oh, I'm a cook, but I'm not a baker. And I've never seen the two things as as separate, um, but it is such a common way of looking at it, I think. So it's still evolving. They work on the recipes, and it's a lot of fun. But I do miss that collaborative environment of the test kitchen because I bake from home a lot. My neighbors and my friends get a lot of my get a lot of my baking tests, which I think that they're happy about. Where do you draw inspiration for your own recipes? Is it mainly from your own childhood? Because I know you said you baked a lot. Is it from the test kitchen, <laughs> or are you trying to you do this so well? Look for ingredients and try to come up with something. Yeah, it's sort of everything. It's, there's so many different sources of inspiration. There's walking through the farmers market. In New York, there's thinking about my favorite recipes that my mom made when I was a kid. There's there's travel and, and sampling pastries from different cities and different countries. There's going to restaurants in New York and seeing what what pastry chefs are doing um, and and what kind of what creativity they're bringing to a dessert. So I I kind of gravitate toward more like fruit forward, slightly more classic desserts. I guess I, I prefer desserts 
that are anchored in something sort of classic, so uh, something recognizable versus something so creative and kind of out of the box that it kind of stands out on its own. That said, there's, there's sort of there's so many different ways to derive inspiration, even for something that um, ultimately is like familiar to me and I think to to like an American audience. Also, I love reading cookbooks, so I don't I I tend to not bake a whole lot from cookbooks or cook through cookbooks at all. But I love I just got a new cookbook in the mail because I was so curious about the recipes in it. So I just love sitting there and reading cookbooks and not just contemporary cookbooks but older books. There's a great store in the city that has like a wonderful selection of antiquarian cookbooks. And that was a lot of what I did in graduate school too, was reading really old cookbooks, like the early modern period. And a lot of them are in the public domain, so you can find them on Google Books. But yes, there's endless inspiration for recipes. And, and the, the, the issue that I have is not coming up with ideas. I have more ideas than I need. It's mostly a time thing because you cannot make a cake bake any faster in the oven <laughs> than <laughs> it's going to take however long it takes. So. Um, time is definitely a limiting factor, not really like ideas or inspiration. You were mentioning things that definitely evoked, um, like nostalgia is a big factor in creating and enjoying the classic things. And I think that's something to look forward to in your new project. Thank you so yeah. much again for sharing the time with me and answering my questions and um, some of my probing thoughts. So I really appreciate oh. it, Claire. This is super amazing. My pleasure, and I really appreciate how thoughtful all of your questions are. It was great to talk to you.